So this morning, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter. Uh, If not, it'll be on the screen or use your app as well. But I do encourage you to find a paper Bible because it's less distracting, at least I find, than my screen. So join with me. We're going to look through these verses here. There's Bibles in the pew back in front of you as well. I'm going to be reading from what's called the New English Translation from 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, then we're going to dig in and uh, see what might come out of the text for us today as we seek to follow Jesus. So Peter is writing to churches in far west Asia, and he says this, So since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, in that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. For the time that has passed was sufficient for you to do what the non-Christians desire." You lived then in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton idolatries. Verse 4, so they are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness anymore, and they vilify you. They They will face a reckoning before Jesus Christ who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. And then the last few verses, 7 through 11, for the culmination of all things, or the end of all things, is near. So, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. And above all, keep your love for one another fervent, Because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without complaining. And just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. And he ends with a little what's called a doxology. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you're doing here at Pilgrim. And we have entered into this new year of the church calendar. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that needs a reset that New Year's provide, that they would Receive it and grab it with your grace. And so, Lord, anoint uh, the teaching side of this as you have moved in worship and conversation and home churches and in service and compassion, all the things that we've been doing as followers of you, sometimes failing to do, but falling on your grace and letting your grace raise us up again. But God, I can't change anyone's hearts. And I confess that before my friends, brothers and sisters, those I know, those I don't know here today, that... Um, I am just a servant, as Paul said, uh, the foolish things. You use the foolish things to confound the wise and to display your glory. So God, I pray that the preaching, the teaching isn't about just eloquent words woven together or not so eloquent words, in my case, woven together, but with demonstration of your Holy Spirit and power touching our hearts and minds and helping each person here, men and women, young and old, to take their next step today in you. So do your work in this house, in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to say amen which is a sign of agreement or so be it, and, and be seated if, you're, if you want to. And if you want to stand, you can stand too, but, you know, that's fine. 
I, I say that jokingly, but I was saved in Pentecostal church, and sometimes if someone got really excited during a sermon, they would actually jump up and say amen and usually wave a hand in the air. I don't see that as much in Canada or in the, those, in the Baptist uh, denomination here, but uh, elsewhere it happens. To tell you a little bit of a story to get started here, you may have never heard of a lady named Miss Ida Skripnikova. She was born in 1941 in St. Petersburg, and of course, you know, uh, that was a wartime there. And eventually, for decades, there was no true freedom in her homeland as well, because obviously it was under the control of the communists. In the fall of 1961, Ada came to know Jesus as her Savior, her Lord, and followed the way of Christ. And so, so Ada makes this choice to follow Jesus at 19 years old. And with her new faith came the impulse to share it with others. It's interesting, when you encounter something good, you want to share it. As Christians become older, we have to kind of relearn how do we share our faith and win some ways that work in the cultures around us. But often that passion of the new believer is there, and she had that passion there in communist uh, union of Soviet socialist republics. She had that passion. So she purchased postcards with beautiful pictures on them, and on one side, and then on the other side, she wrote a poem on the reverse side, and the poem expressed her perception of life and the need for people to find their life in Jesus. So she did these postcards. Imagine that through the postal system in a communist country. That's boldness. So she took her postcards and she actually stood, instead of mailing them, she stood on the Nevesky Prospect, which is equivalent in St. Petersburg of Fifth Avenue in New York City or, or maybe uh, King and, and uh, Young in Toronto. And she handed out the cards on this huge street to people who passed by. And she was, of course, arrested. <laughs> In April of 1962, Ada was tried by the communist court. Of course, in the communist court, the only thing that rules is the party. The party matters. It's a government for the party, by the party, and of the party, not of the people, for the people, by the people. And so the power of the party matters. And she was exiled then from St. Petersburg. And she lost her nice job as a laboratory assistant. And she was arrested again in 1965 and sent to a labor camp for a year. What she found in Christ kept propelling her even under this persecution. In 1968, she was arrested again and sent to a labor camp for an additional three years. I guess the good news of it is I knew people from former Ukraine and Russia who were Baptists and Pentecostals who lived through the communist regimes. Many of their friends and people disappeared and never came back. She kept coming back. The story goes on and says, if Ada Skripnikova had ever come across 1 Peter chapter 4, I don't know if she did or not, but she obeyed the instinct of her heart in the midst of unrelenting persecution. She shared the message of Jesus regardless of the cost, and in doing so, she lived out some of what we have been wrestling with, with 1 Peter and the persecution of believers. This is a dominant theme we see in this whole letter of 1 Peter, our fleshed out faith in the midst of oppression. Believers in Jesus are called to direct their hearts and minds towards living out God's will regardless of the cost. True believers pay a price, but in light of eternity, it is worth the cost. And so this morning, as we look again at 1 Peter, I want to remind you of this big ideas in the text that following Christ, often there is a cost involved in doing it, that there is a challenge involved in doing it. 
And some of us who've been raised or have lived predominantly in Western nations that had, uh, had become Christian and now are post-Christian but still experience quite a bit of freedom rooted in some of those values of enlightenment, uh, we have become, I would say, a bit soft around the middle. I have been healing from shingles, by the way, around the middle, and most of it is gone now, but the pain is still there. I mean, I'm in week three now. I'm not contagious or anything. Don't worry. You can hug me or shake my hand. I'm not going to lick you or whatever, you know. Even then, I'm not contagious, so that would be gross and really strange socially. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, I'm becoming a little soft around the middle because I haven't been able to go to the gym for the last few weeks. So I think we've become spiritually soft around the middle, uh, speaking in our, our, our spiritual way of, of metaphor of where we're at with our faith, often in the West and post-Christendom. We have forgotten that following Jesus is costly, and if it isn't costing us anything, are we actually following Jesus? If it's not costing us anything socially, if we're not declining some, some invitations, if we're not uh, wrestling with should we be in a place or shouldn't we be in a place, and, and very well we may be supposed to be going into a place that's somewhat dark but full of the spirit and life of Jesus, but maybe not. We need to discern. If there are people who aren't asking us questions about our behavior, questions about our outrageous love, we have to ask, are we following Jesus or some Christianized version of, uh, of civil religion? Who are we following? So in our big texts and ideas in the text today is sort of the myth of the human progress, that everything is going to be fine by just human technology and human wisdom, and all of a sudden there'll be this glorious just breakthrough on our, on our own. We know the myth of human progress isn't true. We have increased technology, and yet our sins have also increased or magnified, that, that the capacity for good is also the capacity for evil. Yeah, growing in knowledge and wisdom doesn't necessarily solve the disordering of love in our hearts. And so this text challenges this myth of progress with the claim that there will be an end of history as we know it and the judgment of God over our actions. This is not a popular text to preach from, and yet if we're going to do a verse-by-verse series, which we are doing right now, we don't always do, it brings up these things that challenge some of our, our, our not necessarily our go-to verses in the Bible, that there is an end of human history as we know it, and there is a judge who is the creator and ruler over all. The myth of progress versus the coming judgment of God. A couple other big ideas before we just look through the verses quickly. And by the way, uh, again, you don't have to participate, but sometimes I'll ask you a question. Sometimes I'll just ask you to give a response. It's just to help me know that you're awake and alive. And now if it annoys you or irritates you because you're all wonderful Canadians and, and I am not, I am an immigrant here, uh, just, just smile and just, just think kind thoughts towards me, okay? Uh, but if you want to, you can say amen or if I say let's, let's repeat a word in the text or, let's, or ask you a question, play along. But it's... But it's voluntary. There's no force here. It's your choice, you know. So there, there you go. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I see how it is. All right. Other big ideas in the text: the myth of human progress versus the coming judgment of God. Uh, there are friends that perhaps you need to lose for the sake of your health. We see this in good secular counseling and therapy too. Sometimes there are people in your life that you need to cut out of your life because they are bad for you. Christians have been saying this for, well, centuries, that sometimes in following Christ, you do need to cut some people out. Don't cut everybody out of your life. That can be toxic and unhealthy. But sometimes you need to create space in order for you to heal and get perspective outside of their influence and have other people who are healthier for you in your life. It's called setting boundaries. That's a healthy thing uh, if it's done with intentionality and discernment. 
Uh, and so this comes up in the text as well. This idea, there's some people you may need to lose for your emotional and spiritual health and growth, maybe for a season, maybe permanently, until the life to come, until they're healed as well. One other big point I want to say in terms of big ideas in the text, and we'll explore a few more, is that there is a kind of suffering, and I've mentioned this before, we're not supposed to actively seek out suffering. Like, like think of the story if you watch the Da Vinci Code. Anyone see that movie or you know, know what I'm talking about when I say Da Vinci Code movie? Came out a few years ago. There was this guy, this, this sort of deranged monk. Uh, I think his name was Silas, and he was part of the, the opus, so whatever, this subgroup within Catholicism. And he practiced self-flagellation where he would beat himself. Uh, sort of That kind of thing is anti-Christian, anti-biblical. That is not the suffering that Peter is talking about here, uh, saying, oh, this must be, and naming every suffering that we experience as God's perfect will. I do not believe sickness and disease going through, by the way, painful shingles and the pain that stays after everything is gone uh, is God's perfect will for my life. I don't think God is punishing me. I don't believe that this is somehow uh, uh, something. Now, out of it, I can learn. Out of it, I can grow how I process the pain, certainly. But in terms of it being God's will for my life, I don't see it that way at all. Jesus looked at sickness and disease and said, this an enemy has done, and he'd bring healing and deliverance. And so I think we have to be careful when we wrestle with suffering. But, having said all that, Peter here, one of the big ideas here is there's a kind of suffering we choose, a kind of suffering in following Jesus that is not to act out on every desire and impulse within our bodies, that in fact our loves are to be reshaped, and the reshaping of our loves can hurt sometimes. To use another imagery, since I've not been to the gym for a while, and I'm, I'm getting softer and softer, I'm just more cuddly, I keep expressing, well, whatever, um, <laughs> The, there, there is good pain of going to the gym or stretching or being active. There's good muscle pain, right? Uh, if you overdo it, it can go into bad pain or tears that are not appropriate or tendons and joints. You know, those of you that are therapists will, can castigate me later for my lack of medical specificity on the words. But there's a good kind of pain, and then there's a pain of something truly broken or sick. There is a good pain that we can choose as followers of Jesus that may involve cutting off relationships that are toxic for a season. There is a good kind of suffering of not acting on every desire, particularly, he says, regarding sexuality and regarding food and drink in this passage. He, he drills it right home, and he's not, he's not condemning uh, the idea, you know, sexuality, sex is blessed. He's not saying it's not. He's not saying that food and drink are cursed, but he's saying there is a sort of suffering that we choose in channeling desires and reshaping loves that from the world's perspective makes no sense, but from a Jesus perspective produces something greater within us, a greater capacity of love, a greater capacity of flourishing. Am I making sense this morning? Somebody say yes or amen or whatever you want to shout at me. Okay, all right. Okay. I feel like such an alien sometimes here. I just have to work through it. All right. So those are some three big ideas. There is good pain, there is bad pain. There is some suffering that we choose, that the world tells us, don't choose, just give in to, give in to, just be, just go with whatever that's who you truly are. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You've been warped by generations of brokenness, by genetics, by nurture, and, and by the things that have gone before, and not all of it is, will make for your best life, your flourishing life, and so you do choose some suffering. It's sort of the weird anti-prosperity gospel there. We choose some of these paths in order to experience true life in Christ and to know who we truly are, and it's very countercultural to what's going on in the modern West, but here it is indeed 
in the text. Scott McKnight told a story about one of his friends and how he had to leave his BC group. He's like, well, what's your BC group? My before Christ friend group. <laughs> so I had to leave my BC group when he became a Christian because all they did together was to drink to the point of drunkenness, continually take drugs until they were high. And he missed them and he longed for their conversation as is often the case when you're coming into a new kingdom or a new nation, in this case, spiritually speaking, a sojourner, an immigrant into the kingdom of Christ. But he said, I knew he had to restrict my times with them because he was, due to the carnal broken nature, tempted to overdo it with drink and drug again. And by the time he was cured of his desire for the mind-altering substances coming alive in Christ instead of dulled to the pain, bad pain of the world, being healed from those pains, he had moved on, he had graduated from colleges and moved on to better things. McKnight goes on and says, his story is but one example of countless Christians who have experienced as a result of their coming to Christ and following him a complete change of social groups. McKnight says about this passage, Peter's churches had gone through that kind of change and they provided an early example of what happens when people establish a lifestyle that follows Jesus. Sometimes we have to make changes in our relationships in order to move into a healthier place of being. And certainly if that's true in the secular world, it's certainly true and, and even more so when we look at the kingdom. Sometimes you've got to move on in order to move forward. Somebody ought to say amen. Some of you here this morning are in relationship or friendship and it's toxic and destructive for you and that person is not moving, that friend is not moving, so you need to make a decision. It could be life-giving for you down to a death spiral uh, or it could be life-giving into a new life, into who God wants you to be. And that person may eventually come along, I don't know, but here's the thing, you can't change them. You can't alter them. You can only work on you through the power and the grace of Jesus Christ and in community of others who are going the same direction. And so we wrestle with this as well. Most Christians will experience some kind of opposition in their faith. Maybe it's that blank stare all the way to physical persecution that these people are going to experience or have experienced. I remember becoming a Christian as a young person, making decisions as a youth about those people that I would spend time with and those that weren't. I had many of non-Christian friends, more non-Christian friends than Christian friends, but I was somewhat strategic in who was I going to spend time with and how are they going to shape me and form me. Some of those people I'm still in contact with to this day. Some of them are believers, some of them are not. But here's the thing. We make choices. Our friends determine our future. The people we spend time with help shape us. Christian, your Christian community ought to be central to your social life and your non-Christian friends should also be important in how you engage and love and just be a normal person that can handle living in two kingdoms. But remember, you're living in two kingdoms and sometimes those things are destructive for you and want to drag you back into things that will destroy you and dehumanize you and try to get your identity chasing the things that never fulfill and never help us feel alive and come alive as God intends. Okay, so let's look at these verses I know I'm sharing a lot here by way of intro, but it's important stuff. You're getting the context here this morning. I also want to remind uh, anybody who might be related to me in the back regarding their phone. Oh, hey, all right, all right. I see your eyes there. I just can't see you, so I'm just checking. Okay, there you go. All right. All right. Uh, <clears throat> yes. So let's move on this morning. Looking at these first few verses, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at 7 through 11. Are you with me? I mean, I'm, I love this passage. This is just... just Okay, you're with me. All right, all right. Have any of you ever experienced some level of persecution for following Jesus or suffering or any, any 
even here, let's just say in Canada, some, some inconveniences for following Christ. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. A little bit? No? Some of you? Some of you are you're, you're just you're coasting. You're okay. All right. Well, here we go. So look at these verses. So he says, Christ suffered in the flesh, so arm yourselves. I love New Testament authors. They generally uh, teach that we are enemy love, non-retaliation, and yet they still use military images and drag it into the spiritual applications. Arm yourselves with the attitude. There's an active piece we see here in verse 1, that there is a mindset that we are to learn from Christ regarding how we see the world around us that is an armament. It is, a, it is something that gives us defense and offense against the broken things around us. He says, arm yourself with the same mind of Christ who suffered in the flesh. Of course, Christ's death, his crucifixion. And even before then, we hear of Christ's agony, like at the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ is praying, saying, God, let this cup, let this suffering pass. Let there be another way. And yet he gives this beautiful prayer we call the prayer of relinquishment. And by the way, when you're trying to follow Christ and everyone around you is trying to drag you back into destructive patterns, sometimes you need to be willing to pray this prayer in order to break the bad relationships in your life and say, not my will, but yours be done. And use the example of Jesus. And he says, Christ who suffered in the flesh. And he says this in verse 2, in that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. There is this idea that Suffering can actually help us identify the will of God when it is chosen by following Christ. Again, not the monk in uh, Da Vinci Code, not calling every sickness, oh, this must be God's affliction. My goodness, Jesus healed sickness and disease. He cast out demons. It was a sign of his messiahship. Don't sit there and name every inconvenience or every physical pain as some sort of God-ordained thing. It's part of the brokenness of the war zone. But when it's specifically about following the teachings of Christ, enemy love, calling out brokenness, working for justice, and then experiencing suffering because of that, as long as you're doing it in love and not being a jerk, that kind of suffering helps us move forward even in our own uh, sins, our own things. There's a strength that God gives us, he's telling us. I challenge you to try it for yourself. Don't take my word for it alone. Don't even take Peter's word for it alone. I challenge you to push into hard things for Jesus in a winsome way and see how that shapes your faith and brings it alive. All right, there's more to say. Let's move on. We're almost there to the middle. For the time has passed. In verse 3, he's so funny. Verse 3, he's like, oh, by the way, you, you all, you, you've sinned enough. You've you experienced brokenness enough. You're, you're, you're done. You don't need to do anymore. You can see it. Or as I tell my children, don't always learn by doing the experience. Learn from other people's experiences, both negatively and positively. You can learn from people who were examples or warnings, okay? You could have a choice. You can be, and you can be an example or you can be a warning. And in our lives, we tend to do a little bit of both. But ideally, if you've got your brain uh, connected and you're, and you're following this alertness in your mind, you can learn from other people's warnings instead of always learning from your being warning yourself. Friends, you have, an, you have a choice to make this morning. You can be an example or a warning. And Peter's saying, you're done being a warning. <laughs> Verse 3, for you've done all this stuff. You've, you, before you knew Christ, you've lived in this. And then he gives this vice list. He's, he gives us this beautiful list of brokenness, debauchery, which is a fundamental lack of self-constraint. Our world teaches us to actually be 
uh, debaucherous in our living, to go with it for all the gusto, whether it's drink or whether it's food or whether it's sex or whatever it is. And he said, that's a fundamental lack of self-constraint that actually lowers in terms of experience what God desires for these areas. And so he gives them this, this list here. He says, lustful desires, desires of our, our body and our sexuality that are undirected by Christ and uninformed by what the intention was in creation. And he said, these things, we need to be aware of this and stay away from making these choices, which may feel like suffering in postmodern Western culture or late modern Western culture, but it is truly not suffering, by the way. Choosing not to engage, choosing to know those boundaries. Say, pastor boy, that's... I know there's fewer people here. This it's a little it's first advent. I get that. I don't have my suitcase packed, but do wrestle with this. Hear the text. Hear what God might want to say to us. He goes on and says, "Evil desires, drunkenness, uh, drinking to excess." This these next three terms here: drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and just carousing, are often what happened around pagan religious festivals. Uh, and indeed, the Greek philosophers condemned this as well. But here in Christianity, it's being condemned. He's saying this idea of these parties that were around worshiping the gods of the Greco-Roman culture and letting yourself get totally caught up in it. He's like, this stuff is destructive for you. It, the, it, it's the stuff that you don't want to live with the next morning. He's saying these are the things we need to be aware of in terms of coming to Christ. Uh, really basic stuff about our bodies and our living. And then finally, he ends with idolatry, worshiping all kinds of gods. Idolatry in Jewish tradition would have spoke to those folks about being unclean, but also for new believers, wherever they were coming from, this idea of there is one true God, worship him only. So we're almost there. Now look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Are you still with me, amen? Okay, all right. Verse (laughs) 4. He says, so your, your former friends or your current friends, they're astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness, or some translations would use the word dissipation, but wickedness works more common word. And they vilify you. So the people you were running with before, doing all this stuff, losing your, your mind and your body and just whatever, making decisions that made you a warning to both the, the Greek ethical philosophers and the teachings of Jesus, he said, by the way, now they're mad at you because you're not doing the exact same stuff. You may go to the party, but you don't drink until you can't function anymore. You may go to the party, but you're staying faithful to the one other person you've covenanted life together with. You, you may decide, I can't go to the party anymore because I, I don't have strong enough boundaries, and they get mad at you for that. You notice what shifted there is you're getting healthier, and people that don't want to get healthier want to condemn you. Have you ever experienced that in your life? There's secular examples, certainly spiritual examples as well where you made a choice about your schedule, you made a choice about how you're going to spend your time, and some people are irritated with you because you're not running with them anymore like you used to do, but you know you're getting healthier, you're getting sounder in mind and body, and you're also aiming for a better life with people that want to run in the same direction. Have you, have you ever experienced that before? Well, I tell you what, if you choose to follow Jesus, you will experience that. And you experience in secular culture, if you want to better yourself educationally, it means students, you got to stop running around the people that are constantly cursing the teachers and constantly ripping down all, uh, maybe it means getting into a different uh, situation. You know, if you want to go into higher education, I'm using education as an example because I spent a lot of life in education, uh, you may need to find better mentors, better peers, people that are going to challenge you and encourage you to, to spend the time you need to spend to better yourself. I use that example as well because I work with students, I've been a student, and I have students, so there we go. 
Teachers can probably amen me on that one. Teachers, I know you're kind of over here, so. (laughs) You've probably seen students where they're in relationships with other students, and you're like, oh, you know, and you may not be able to say, I don't know how much you can say to them, but you try, maybe try to encourage them in their, their choices. You know, I, it's a real thing. All right, let's go to the last part of here, last part of this section, and then the last part will go somewhat quickly. I said, they will face a reckoning, verse 5, before Jesus. The myth of progress is tipped on its head. Time is moving towards an endpoint. Christians believe there are some somewhat cycles and times and encounters throughout human history, but we believe it's moving to an endpoint when Jesus will come again. And this is a scandalous belief. It's hard to hold on to, and yet it is there in all Orthodox Christianity that there will come a time when creation as we know it, there will be a disjunction between what has been and what will be. Christians debate what that looks like, whether there's going to be like, you know, nuclear war and craziness, or whether it's going to be a smooth transition of heaven and earth becoming one as we see in the end of Revelation, and the new Jerusalem descending, and earth and you know, Christians debate how that disjunction is going to happen, but there is no argument that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, and his kingdom will be made up of people from every background, every ethnicity, every nationality, all socioeconomic classes, that is, his kingdom is a universal kingdom, and he reigns over it in justice and truth and peace and grace for those who walk in love, but there will be a disjunction. And Peter says to those that are suffering, where you may not see justice under the the imperial powers of today, you may not see that right now in Canada or in the States or wherever, you may not see full justice, but one day God promises and we cast our hope onto that, that he will judge justly like no human can ever judge. And that's to give us hope to live differently now. We can work for love and we can work for justice and we can work for truth But even when we experience setbacks, we don't give up because we see the big picture. And you say, that seems so nonsensical. It does, but the proof is in the pudding. The church has been a prophetic voice against totalizing powers for 2,000 years. We've outlasted empire after empire with no swords, with no uh, machines of weaponry. And here we are. The truth is in the pudding. You don't understand the under-upside-down power of the kingdom of God sometimes. The fact that we are here today wrestling with Jesus' teaching, being claimed by his word, tells us that there is a deeper power in this than we can possibly even begin to imagine and and that the empires around us want to deaden us and blind us to it, but they know, they're quaking in their boots that they must silence the message of Jesus because they know that there's truth in it that goes all the way down and all the way back in all time. So he says, have hope. And they don't have the luxury that we have of seeing the centuries Now, the church has gone off the rails. The church has been co-opted by the the empire sometimes. But Jesus is the Lord of the church, and he's always correcting it, and he's always working by his spirit to bring it back to him at the center. Whew, okay. That was, landed. We got communion, and everyone said amen. Okay. Now, it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, people who had heard the gospel and now had passed away, as how we, most people would understand that verse, biblical scholars, So that though they were judged in the flesh, they died, they will live again by God's standards, those that chose to follow or those that didn't choose to follow. So the last verses here in this little passage, verses 7 through 11. Am I the only weird one whenever I say 7-11, I always think of a little... (laughs) Okay, all right, okay, I feel... Thank you, I feel feel part of the team again. Um, (laughs) Verses 7 through 11, for the culmination, the end of all things is near. 
So he's talking about this disjunction in time between Christ's first coming and second coming. Very Advent passage, by the way. Advent is where we live into that tension again between Jesus coming as a little baby Jesus and Jesus coming as the ruling king and ruler over all the Pantocrat or the ruler over all things. The culmination of all things is near. So be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of prayer. It's so funny because religious legalists may look at this verse as self-controlled, sober-minded, so we can look like Pharisees to the world. No, 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 no. He says, no, no. Actually, there's a clarity of thought in mind that we should cultivate. And he's not against having fun and partying. It's just the excess and the living that lifestyle and then destructive life patterns that come out. But he's talking about this sharpness of mind. He's talking about this idea of, of being in control of your emotions, reordering your love. So you just don't say, well, if it feels this way, that must be who I truly am. It might not be. It might be a lie that you're living into because of nature or nurture or genetic sin before that has come before you. Don't live into that lie, he says. He says, be sober-minded, be self-controlled. Reorder your loves first and foremost so you can cultivate holy imagination or we might say, as he does, prayer, talking to God, being still before the Lord. That there's something about how we approach prayer that makes it, uh, that sense of effectiveness the efficacy of it is in our mindset going into it. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of prayer so you will pray and not just blow it off. Because again, in prayer, something is shaped and formed in you that's not shaped in any other practice. The practice of prayer does something deep within you. The practice of prayer puts you in touch with the Creator. The practice of solitude, the practice of talking to God, saying what's on your heart and mind, that there is power in prayer. I thank God that when I became a Christian, it was in a church and it was before the advent of all the screens and things that are, I think make prayer even harder for us unless we use it to set reminders that remind us to stop and pray so we can use the technology. I think for many of us, we never get that far. We have intentions of using it and then we don't actually go past that. So we should. But I thank God I became a Christian in a context where prayer was taught. It was modeled. And it wasn't necessarily taught through great preaching and teaching. In fact, I would say the church I grew up in, and I'm like a middle-line preacher, slowly getting better with age. By the time I hit 60, I'm going to be amazing, and you're going to be like, get out, Grandpa, go retire. Um, (laughs) But I see how it is. I can see it coming. I'm preparing ahead of time. Um, So it wasn't necessarily through excellent teaching, but it was modeling it. And these people spoke out loud, like they used their voice. And we had prayer meetings, and some people were silent, and some people were loud. And you just learned through doing how to pray. At the end of services, we often make prayer available in our home churches we pray, but you pray by doing. You learn by doing it. So be self-controlled about all these other things. Be clear-minded and pray. And then he says this in his last few verses. Above all, above all this, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about spiritual gifts, above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. It's Communion Sunday. We go a little long. You have an actual example to do today about loving towards me as I preach. But love fervently one another. It covers a multitude of sins. Is he saying that love overlooks, perhaps in minor offenses? Proverbs says it's a glory of a man or a woman to overlook a minor offense. But I think what love, and what seems most scholars land on this one is, what he's saying is when we cultivate real relationship and begin to love and care for one another, that's why home churches are important because you drill deeper than you ever will in this larger gathering, is that it's easier to walk into forgiveness. It's easier to have those 
As John says, in Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth. And Jesus, of course, is defined as love. That in that context, it's, it's easier to begin to have those reconciling conversations. It's easier to extend forgiveness. It's easier to walk into that. And so love has to be gritty. It can't be emotional, just emotional. Emotions are good or bad. It's not, when Scripture talks about love, it's going much deeper than that as actually reordering desires around the teachings and life of Christ as our example. Covers a multitude of sins. And then he gives some other examples here, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. (laughs) If you read in some of the early church documents, uh, like the Didache talks about this idea of traveling evangelists and missionaries, and apparently there was an issue in the early church because they met in homes. They didn't have buildings at this point other than when they borrowed like a synagogue early on. And then they got kicked out. Um, but he said, you know, you had these traveling evangelists, and sometimes they would stay. And one of the early Christian documents written about a century or two after this said, basically, well, if that traveling missionary wants to stay more than two to three days, their false missionary kick them out. Because <laughs> apparently there was an issue of hospitality being abused in the early church. But think about what is going on here. This is talking about the local gathering, people hosting the church, hosting one another, welcome each other into their lives, show hospitality. And, and you can look at different definitions for hospitality, but this intentional, responsible, and caring act of welcoming or visiting, either in public or private spaces, often those who are strangers, enemies, distressed, and without regard for reciprocation. Now, we should reciprocate if we can, but if we can't, we don't hold someone in judgment over that without complaining. And then he lands it with the last two. Just as you have received a gift... And he's talking here about charisma, charismata, the the charismatic, which literally is grace gifts, grace gifts of the Holy Spirit. He said, use these to serve one another and be good stewards of God's grace, his various graces as expressed in these gifts. Grace gift, the very graces of God that God gives to each person. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians again, that you are members of the body. Each one of you are a part of it. He says, do this, serve And serve with the strength that God supplies. God's words and service are two basic aspects of all the different gifts. They're word gifts and they're service giftings. And do it with the strength that God supplies. So that in everything, God will be glorified. And then he breaks out in doxology. And I love this in the New Testament. Every once in a while, an author will just break out in a doxology, which is just basically saying, giving glory, thanks, praise, esteeming, highly valuing the creator of all. And he does this to him. How does he say it here in this one? He says, to him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So when we do all of these things, it brings glory to God. It pleases God. It makes God uh, uh, delighted in his creation. It's sort of that, that warmth of the Father shining down on us as we learn to live in this way in the face of suffering. So let us land this today. I just want to wrap it up by naming a few things. Remember that these people are persecuted or they will be persecuted. They are between... Excuse me, the ramping up persecution of their families, maybe uh, turning their backs on them. Some people were losing inheritances. Some people will be persecuted more harshly as Nero's reign gets ramped up and he blames the Christians for all the bad things in the empire. (laughs) Pause. When have we heard that before? Can you think of any politicians that blame Christians for all the bad things that happen? Does this not happen again and again in cycles throughout human history? Revelation is written and it names actually heard that there's a nation on, right now in this world that bans the preaching from Revelation, even though they have some church freedom, but not much. 
Because Revelation just names it straight up and says there are antichrists again and again, political powers who want to claim total control over your mind and your body and your spirit. They are antichrist powers, and Jesus will judge them one day if they don't repent and turn. Well, we remember this. To him, to God, be the glory of all things. So we remember they are persecuted people. They're dealing, under, they're dealing with suffering or will be dealing with suffering. And it may be hard for us to relate fully, but I think in some of these small ways that we've named today, we can also relate. Choosing to engage differently with your heart and your mind and your being. So to wrap it up in a bow, we see in the first part again this idea of making choices that your friends do determine your future. And that if you cannot be an influencer for the kingdom, you may need to create healthy boundaries. Is that, does that, do we all understand that? Amen? Amen? I don't know who those people are in your life, but there might be some that you have to distance. Um, or they will distance themselves from you, and you need to be willing to let it go for a season or however long it may be. That's a tough thing to, to wrestle with. It really is. But what kind of future do you desire that God has for you as a person and as a people? Uh, also, that God will, again, the myth of progress, God will judge all things one day. And we can rest in that, and we can be empowered by that. It means I don't have to be the ultimate sword wielder of justice. I can trust in God's justice. I have some Mennonite family, and this belief in ultimate justice of God for some is a very comforting thing. They can release that, that God will judge rightly one day. And God's justice, by the way, as we learn from the story of Jonah, as Jonah said, I didn't want to go to those Ninevites, those awful, horrible, violent people over there, because I knew if they repented, you'd forgive them. So I trust in God's judgment and justice that he sees people in the clearest way where I may want to give excess of condemnation and retribution. His justice to those that begin to turn, he sees us. That our lives are but a vapor but a moment, and he judges more fairly than we could ever judge. We want to give eternal condemnation to people, but he judges differently. He see, see, I can't be the judge. You can't be the judge because we're too vengeful. We're too quick to sit on our anger and to, and to let that fester and de-warp our souls into, again, something that's just like the enemy that we're condemning. Oh, that's another sermon. i got to stop. <laughs> so this morning we remember that. And then finally, in the last passages, to wrap it up again, We remember this idea of hospitality and spiritual gifts. That these things and the love that covers a multitude of sins, the love, the hospitality, the spiritual gifting are so important for community to flourish, particularly when you're being rejected by the larger culture when you're following Jesus. We don't experience that much in late modern Canada, but we may experience it at some level. And that's why home churches matter. That's why gathering together matters. We need the power of one another and the spirit and community to know and to be reminded of who we truly are deep down, beloved children of God, working for the betterment of all people, even those who are rejecting. So we stand in that and we see the power of community here as well, that the community of faith matters deeply for formation and strength in trying times. So stand with me this morning. We're going to pray and then we're going to receive communion uh, together. Would you do so if you're able to do so?